Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll climb to the top of Florida's tallest lighthouse at the Ponce Inlet Light Station. Some come down at the seat of their pants, all the way down the 203 steps. It's quite a sight to see. We'll discuss the personal papers of Florida Territorial Governor's wife, Mary Martha Reed. She started working at a Confederate hospital in in Virginia, and she opened up what was called the Florida Hospital, the Florida House, and she treated thousands of uh, Florida uh, soldiers, Confederate soldiers, who were sick, wounded, and and dying. And go to the Nyaderolf exhibit at the University of South Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. There are people who go up and finally can't come down. Bob Callister is programs manager at the Ponce Inlet Light Station. We have to talk them down. Some people come down backwards on the stairway. Some come down at the seat of their pants, all the way down the 203 steps. It's quite a sight to see. But most people really, really, really enjoy once they get up to the top and, and feel the, uh, the cool air and, the, and see the beautiful view. They get a much better idea as far as what life was like back 125 years ago, or even today for that matter. Uh, the, uh, the area around the lighthouse has changed so much from the pictures we have of years ago um, where there was no building at all. The light station at Ponce de Leon Inlet, popularly known as Ponce Inlet, is home to a red brick lighthouse that is 175 feet tall. From the top of the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse, you get a spectacular view of the Atlantic Ocean, Ponce Inlet, the Halifax River running north, and the Indian River running south. On a clear day, you can see all the way to Cape Canaveral from this lighthouse, just south of Daytona Beach. As Bob Callister explains, the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse was completed in 1887. It's the tallest lighthouse in Florida. Uh, It's probably the most complete, restored light station in the United States. Uh, We have had a lot of people here over the years that have commented how how beautifully the buildings are restored, how beautiful the grounds are kept, and that wasn't by any accident. The uh, Preservation Association was formed in 1972 and uh, has put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making this the way it is today. The Ponce Inlet Light Station was named a National Historic Landmark in 1998. There are eight original 1887 buildings at the light station, including the lighthouse. Three lighthouse keepers' houses are now home to exhibits and displays focusing on local history and demonstrating what life was like in Florida in the 1800s. John Mann is a tour guide at the Ponce Inlet Light Station. He tells us that the first lighthouse keeper here was a Russian immigrant named William Rolinsky. Rolinsky was a Confederate uh, war veteran. And I always found that to be fascinating because uh, usually after uh, the uh, uh, war between the states, that uh, Union veterans were appointed. Uh, we have no idea what um, Mr. Relinsky's uh, uh, connections were, 
uh, with the federal government. Uh, but uh, I always found that to be uh, very, very interesting and very unique. Yeah, but he was actually the uh, first keeper, the first principal keeper. He had two assistant uh, keepers, and he is credited with lighting the light uh, the first time, November 1st, 1887. When the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse was put into operation in 1887, its beam of light could be seen 20 miles out to sea. As John Mann and Bob Callister explain, when William Rolinski left the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse in 1893, his successor was an Irishman named Thomas Patrick O'Hagan. Mr. O'Hagan um, is probably responsible for more lighthouse keepers in the state of Florida than any other individual. I, uh, I believe at last count... Uh, Mr. O'Hagan had 11 children. Uh, many of his sons, I think three, became keepers themselves, uh, probably by serving uh, uh, unofficial apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeships uh, with, his, uh, uh, with their father. And uh, actually, uh, one of uh, Mr. O'Hagan's relatives, I believe his granddaughter is now the head of the Amelia Island Lighthouse Foundation up uh, Fernandina Beach, Amelia Island. Uh, and she indeed was born at Amelia Island Light Station. I think he was the keeper. I think his son there was the assistant keeper when she was born. She and her husband run the foundation, do tours up at Amelia Island. Yeah, fascinating story. We also know that one of his sons was the... Um was the relief keeper here at the Ponsonet Lighthouse uh, after the uh, the uh, tower was electrified in 1933, and they were cutting back because they didn't need as many keepers with the electricity, and uh, he was uh, assigned here as one of the relief keepers uh, during that period of time. We don't know how long he was here, but he was here for a short period of time at least. Yeah, you, you will find the O'Hagan name uh, at St. Augustine. You'll find the O'Hagan name as, uh, on the list of keepers at uh, Cape Canaveral, I believe also at Jupiter. So it's fascinating, uh, fascinating family, a, a real lighthouse uh, service family. It was during Thomas Patrick O'Hagan's tenure as principal lighthouse keeper that a ship called the Commodore sunk off of Daytona Beach in 1897. One of the passengers on the Commodore was author Stephen Crane, best known for his novel The Red Badge of Courage. Crane wrote an article about his experience of being shipwrecked, and it also inspired his short story The Open Boat. John Mann. Mr. O'Hagan never actually met Mr. Crane because, of course, Mr. Crane uh, uh, and his infamous dinghy uh, wrecked about uh, nine miles north of the lighthouse itself. But... Uh, the morning prior to Mr. Crane coming ashore, ingloriously as that was, with the uh, with the dinghy uh, uh, going over in the uh, in the breakers, uh, the first boatload of survivors from the uh, Commodore uh, did come ashore here, about a, a mile north of here. Uh, Twelve uh, Cuban uh, rep, uh, rebels. Actually, they were part of the uh, the insurrection uh, uh, in uh, uh, in Cuba at that time, and they uh, walked to the lighthouse. Um, they were given aid by Keeper O'Hagan and uh, the other assistant keepers, and and Keeper O'Hagan's uh, family uh, went to New Smyrna caught the train back to Jacksonville, and never told anyone else because of the clandestine nature of uh, their activity 
that there were other people in lifeboats out there. A uh, second load of uh, 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 Cuban uh, rebels uh, landed about three miles north of the first boatload, and they indeed uh, never uh, told anyone that uh, Crane, uh, the captain, the oiler, and the cook were still out there uh, in the water. John Mann often portrays Edward Murphy, the captain of the Commodore, for students and tour groups. One of the newer buildings at the Ponce Inlet Light Station is the Lens Exhibit Building, which houses a collection of restored lighthouse lenses. Bob Callister. Uh, before the light was electrified, they used kerosene to light the lamp. Uh, this lighthouse was built after the days of whale oil being used, and uh, kerosene was first used in the Civil War, I believe. And um, But in 1887, they used that was the uh, the fuel of choice, so to speak, of the lighthouse service, and they built the... Uh, this particular lighthouse in order to use a uh, first-order Fresnel lens, which is essentially the biggest of the six orders of Fresnel lenses. Um, they had a, a five-concentric wick uh, lantern, a kerosene lantern, which we have on display over in the Lens Museum. And uh, they would light that every night. They used five gallons of kerosene that they had to carry up weighed about 40 pounds. They had to carry that kerosene up the steps, all 203 steps, um, in order to, um, to have enough fuel on hand to keep the light lit all night. It's very, very important that the light be lit all night. Now, because we had, or I should say the Pontina Lighthouse had a fixed lens there was no rotation necessary, therefore there was no clockwork necessary to keep the lens going around and around as the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse did uh, before it was electrified in 1931. Yeah, fixed lens, as uh, Mr. Callister uh, r refers to it, means that um, its signal at night was a steady beam of light which uh, translated six miles out would be a, uh, a single beam of white light, an intense beam of, of white light. Uh, characteristics uh, of uh, nighttime characteristics are flashes or a fixed lens. Uh, this, our first first order lens, the, the, the initial lens before electrification, uh, was probably removed uh, at the complaint of uh, some ship's captains who began to have trouble discerning the lighthouse light from lights along the beach, perhaps in some of the hotels, the early hotels that were being built, which were all lit and perhaps were confusing the uh, captains. The United States Lighthouse Service uh, used a, uh, a replacement lens here that they had up at uh, Sapelo Island in Georgia uh, they had uh, closed that uh, station down, and uh, it is indeed a flashing lens. It is the same one that we have up top right now. Well, we're up here in a, a part of the lighthouse where the, the public doesn't usually have access. Ex explain where we are. We are in the lantern room of the, uh, the Ponce in the Lighthouse. 
We're looking at the third order lens that was uh, installed in 2004, originally installed in 1933, when the tower was electrified. Now, there's a spectacular view from up here. Uh, you were telling me about a, a racetrack that uh, used to be on the beach and uh, uh, used to come around here. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, the racetrack was actually uh, within easy uh, sighting of, of where we are right now. There's a condominium complex uh, three of uh, three uh, units on the, the south turn. It's uh, called Beach Street. And uh, that's where the south turn of the racetrack was. And they would race up the beach, north up the beach. And at the north turn restaurant was where the north turn of the, of the racetrack was. And then they would race down south on the McAdam Road to the south turn. And that's, that was the, uh, the, the, uh, the whole racetrack. That was in the days before NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR track was built in 1959. The last race was held on the beach in 1958. Well, it's a spectacular view up here, but it's a lot cooler just down below where the public can uh, reside. I guess we can go back down there and look around, too. Sounds like a good idea. It's supposed to be 97 up here right now, but I think it's more like 107. <laughs> I think you're right. Until 1929, the Ponce de Leon Inlet was known as Mosquito Inlet, but the new name was deemed more attractive for potential residents. In 1939, the Coast Guard took over operation of the lighthouse, and in 1970, it was decommissioned. In 1980, though, the lighthouse was relit, bringing many more visitors to the historic site. So from 1980 until the present day, the lighthouse has been relit. It currently has its, uh, the original 1933 third-order lens in it. That was uh, taken down probably in the 1970s, early 1970s was put in storage someplace, was reacquired by the Preservation Association, and restored and reinstalled in the lighthouse in 2004. And at that time, the Coast Guard bid a fond adieu to the Ponce in the lighthouse and uh, turned the, uh, the maintenance of the, the, the um, um, tower over to the maintenance department here on, at the... Um, at the Ponson Lighthouse. So we are now a privately owned aid to navigation. Uh, I'm sure there's many, many more in the United States, but that makes us uh, very proud to, to know that we jumped through enough hoops to, that the Coast Guard allowed us to maintain the light. And it is still an active aid to navigation even today. Today, the Ponce Inlet Light Station is also a valuable educational resource. Several thousand students visit the lighthouse annually, and classroom outreach programs reach thousands more. The Ponce Inlet Light Station is open daily from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and stays open until 9 p.m. during the summer. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great Florida books, listen to archived editions of this program, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. My dear son, it's almost June. I hope this letter catches up with you and finds you well. It's been dry, but they're calling for rain. And everything's the same old same 
Johnsonville Your stubborn old daddy ain't said too much But I'm sure you know he sends his love And she goes on In a letter from home Letters from Home are an important part of the personal papers of Mary Martha Reed at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History. Ben, Mary Martha Reed was married to a territorial governor of Florida before it was named a state in 1845. That's right, and uh, Mary Martha Reed was actually born in St. Mary's, Georgia, just over the border in 1812. Uh, and when she was uh, still a young woman, she visited her sister in St. Augustine, uh, about right around 1836, where she met a uh, gentleman by the name of Robert Raymond Reed, who at the time uh, was a U.S. Superior Court judge for the district, the territory of East Florida. Um, they fell in love and, and were actually soon married uh, later that year, um, in 1836. Um, they had two sons, William, who died at a young age, and uh, Raymond, uh, who actually lived uh, uh to be in, lived into adulthood. Um, as, as shortly after they were married, uh, Judge Reed was appointed by the uh, territorial legislator to be Governor Reed um, and served as governor for a few years uh, before he died in, in 1841, just shy of, of Florida becoming a state. Um, now, Mrs. Reed at, at this time was still raising her, her young son, so she opened up a school in St. Augustine to support herself through the, um, through the 1850s. Now, a really interesting part of this collection are letters to Mary Martha Reed from friends in St. Augustine. Right. This is a really fascinating part of her biography, of her story. So she's uh, living and working in St. Augustine, taking care of herself and her son uh, until the Civil War breaks out in, in 1861. Of course, Florida secedes from the Union, uh, becomes a Confederate state. Her son at the time, who was only 20 years old, decided to join the Confederate Army um, and, and joined up with the 2nd Florida Infantry, who was then sent up to uh, to fight in the, in the war in, in Virginia, actually. Um, and being that that was her only son, she decided to essentially follow him, and, and to be close to him, she started working at a Confederate hospital in, in Virginia, and she opened up what was called the Florida Hospital, the Florida House, and she treated thousands of uh, Florida uh, soldiers, Confederate soldiers, who were sick, wounded, and, and dying uh, in the field of battle up in, in Virginia, um, and she did so throughout the war. Uh, unfortunately, in 1864, her only son was uh, mortally wounded in battle, and she was with him uh, when he died, uh, but it left her really with no one. Um, throughout the war, however, her friends back in St. Augustine, uh, like you said, were sending letters and, and describing uh, what was happening in, in Florida at the time and, and how the war was essentially transpiring and what was changing. Uh, and it's really fascinating. You can see some early letters from 1861 all the way through to 1864, and they become more and more frantic. The letters are written on, on smaller pieces of paper. And, and in fact, um, some letters are, are written uh, over old letters uh, because there's just a shortage of all supplies. Um, in fact, this is a letter from early 1862, and uh, this woman is writing to Mary Reed, and she says, um, in Fernandina, the, the price of flour has risen to $5 a pound, which in 1862 is an incredible amount of money. Uh, she goes on to write that uh, many families are only eating one meal a day, and, and she uh, 
thinks about the, the coming events and says that they cast their shadows, their dark shadows before, and, and feels that she can do nothing but walk and talk in St. Augustine and um, hope that the worst does not happen. Uh, so it was a little bit of, of foreboding there, but um, it's really fascinating. Like I said, you can trace how St. Augustine, this one city in Florida, was affected by the war um, uh, throughout, its, throughout its course. Explain, if you would, how Mary Martha Reed's work during the Civil War has really uh, left a lasting legacy today. Well, like I said, she had traveled to Virginia essentially to be close to her son, uh, but what she did in the Florida hospital was much um, uh, more important than, than just being near her son. She treated thousands of soldiers, not only from Florida, uh, but for Confederate soldiers from all over the, all over the South, um, and she helped to uh, comfort these young men as they were dying. And, um, you know, we have to remember that uh, at this time, this was absolutely devastating. I mean, everyone's world was really turned upside down. Um, this woman really had lost everything. Um, so she, when she came back to Florida, not only did she sort of pick herself back up, but she opened up another school and tried to help out uh, families who, uh, who had lost sons and fathers and uh, other family members and, and helped to uh, re, sort of rebuild um, the city of St. Augustine and, and, um, and the state of Florida itself. And in the 1890s, when she was um, uh, in her 80s, she actually lived to almost to the 20th century. She passed away late in, in the 1890s. Uh, the Daughters of the Confederacy named their first Florida chapter uh, in her honor. It's now, it's now still known as the Mary Martha Reed chapter of the uh, Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, and the then governor, um, Francis Fleming, uh, wrote a number of letters to her personal letters uh, thanking her for her service during the war. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. I hold it up and show my buddies like we ain't scared and our boots ain't muddy but no one laughs cause there ain't nothing funny when a soldier cries and I just wipe my eyes I fold it up and put it in my shirt pick up my gun and get back to work and it keeps me driving on, waiting on. Letters from home. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello of robertcasanello.com takes us to a unique exhibit at the University of South Florida that looks at what it means to be a Floridian. They titled it, um, the exhibition, The Niederolf. It kind of sounds like a German word, <laughs> Niederolf. Uh, but it's really, and when you walked in, it's, it's not up right now, but when you walk in, you would see Niederolf in a mirror and you would stand in a mirror and look in the mirror and look down and see that Niederolf is Floridian spelled backwards. That was Dr. Christian Wells, Associate Professor of History at the University of South Florida. His students curated an exhibit at the Waterman Gallery in the Social Sciences Building on the campus of the University of South Florida. He spoke to me about this exhibit titled Niederolf. The inspiration for the exhibit was a play on the famous 1956 anthropology article titled Body Ritual Among the Nakarima. Nakarima is, of course, American spelled backwards. 
This article imagined someone viewing American bathroom rituals as an outsider to Western culture and finding it peculiar and strange. This work satirized what it meant to be the other and influenced academic circles for decades. Here, Dr. Wells tells me how the exhibit was inspired from the discussion that came out of this graduate class. 48% of Floridians were born in another state, and this has created a, um, a sense of identity confusion or lack of identity because Floridians don't, the majority of Floridians don't really know their history. So the students wanted to start to interview some Floridians. And so they went around campus and they interviewed people who were born in the state, people who came from other places, uh, other countries, and they just found a really great diversity in what it meant to be Floridian. And so they decided to put together uh, an exhibition initially with Florida artifacts, uh, Florida antiques. We started to go to a lot of antique places and look at evidence of Florida's past and what is quintessentially Floridian. And that was a really frustrating exercise because we didn't come up with anything concrete. We learned though that um, objects represent place and collections of objects represent people and their identity. And so they wanted to examine the collections that Floridians have made, collections of, of art and artifacts and ethnographic materials. And so we gained access to a number of different collect people's collections, and that's what's really featured in the, the museum, uh, in the gallery, are collections that people have made. And these are items that have been collected all over the world. And so when you come into the gallery and you think you're going to see something about Florida, what you see is stuff from all over the world. And that's the whole point that the students wanted to make, is that Florida is incredibly diverse. And the particular collections that people put together really say something about their identity as Floridians. One of the people featured in the exhibit was a man named Gordon Howard from Tarpon Springs, Florida. Upon his death, his collection was donated to the University of South Florida. He traveled around the world and extensively throughout the South Pacific. Dr. Wells tells me what he thinks his collection means to the broader theme of the exhibit. On his travels, he was really fascinated with notions of the other. And so most of the pieces in his collection are either masks so that he could actually wear them and be in the shoes of somebody else, or um, they are sculptures of himself that he had people make. Um, one of the pieces, for example, is a sculpture of uh, himself uh, naked as a Maori warrior with the Maori tattoos on his hips and buttocks, and it's really a spectacular piece. Uh, Gordon Howard moved to Florida in the 1980s, and he would invite a lot of uh, native Floridians over to his house and regale them with all these stories of, of all of his travels and in many cases prompt people to go and revisit many of the places that he visited. Uh, so I think that that really captures one of the essences of people who come to Florida. They are travelers. They come from somewhere else, and they have really broad and global experiences. Dr. Linda Whiteford, who is a colleague of Dr. Wells in the anthropology department, contributed her collection of dolls around the world. On exhibit are dolls she collected for her daughter a practice handed down to her from her own parents. The dolls came from the Caribbean and West Africa. Here, 
Dr. Wells tells me what students thought Dr. Whiteford's collection meant in their exploration of the complicated identity of Floridians. Uh, they sort of exemplify this notion that the students are exploring in this exhibition called Pieces of Places, where Floridians are as much tourists as tourists come and visit Florida. Um, and so we have a lot of souvenirs. And so this is part of the collection that um, are souvenirs from other places, bringing other places back from far away or unknown or unusual cultures around the world. That was Dr. Christian Wells, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontier. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can get great information and join the conversation on our Facebook page. Just like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Visit our website as well at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.